Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between for one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey of revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Williamson, I am the solution to your problems. I can take him out, okay? I'm nothing but a worthless guy, Gene, and everybody knows he killed my partner. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1989 action movie, Black Rain, produced by Joffe Lansing Productions and Pegasus Film Partners, distributed by Paramount Pictures. It stars Michael Douglas, Andy Garcia, Ken Takakura, and Kate Capshaw. Directed by Ridley Scott, this movie is rated R with a running time of two hours and five minutes. Black Rain was nominated for two Oscars, one for Best Sound and the other for Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Director Ridley Scott who created two of Hollywood's most impactful and stylish adventure thrillers, Alien and Blade Runner, hits the mark again in Black Rain. Academy Award winner Michael Douglas, Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, and Andy Garcia, Internal Affairs, The Untouchables, play New York cops whose job to escort a vicious assassin back to his native Japan leads the two Americans into Osaka's exotic underworld and straight into the center of a raging, brutal Yakuza gangland battle. Black Rain. Black Rain. Another short and sweet synopsis, my friend. Yeah, I guess I should have said 90s for Video Store because by the time this movie came out on video, it would have been the early 90s. True. Very true. I don't know how many people will write in and complain about that. Note it. You made a mistake there. (laughs) All right. How we doing? Hey, I'm doing great, man. I was really looking forward to this. I can't wait to get into the Academy Award nominated Black Rain. It's funny thinking about this film. I don't regard it as a an Oscar type of movie, but I can see that for sure. I'm glad you brought that up right from the top. Some quality filmmaking in this uh, in this one. I'm surprised it was more for sound and sound effects. I thought maybe more of a cinematography or something. But yeah, let's get into it. What are your earliest memories of Black Rain, Jason? All right, let's get into it. Absolutely. From 1989, I'm going to start right off with the lobby poster. Heck yeah, man. I recall going to, I believe it was the Lakehurst Cinema in the suburb of Chicago. That would uh, have been the Lakehurst Mall. This was near where I lived outside of Lindenhurst. And I would uh, go to the movies with my friends, uh, Rob and Gosh, it was Mike and Andy. And and there was a whole slew of these guys that we just, that's, that was our ritual Friday night movies. And we'd often go to the Lakehurst cinema and we were looking forward to this because we knew it was a Ridley Scott production or directed film and it's starring the one and only Michael Douglas. And that poster had been out for some time and we'd always see it in the lobby. And it's just that image of Michael Douglas looking like a badass with the sunglasses on, with the leather jacket on, wearing the NYPD badge, sitting atop the motorcycle. Hell yeah. So my friends would always stare at it and go, oh, man, this is coming out soon. We're going to get we're going to go see it as soon as it does. And we did. Uh, So that's my first memory for sure, is that poster, that great image of Douglas on the motorcycle. And then I go straight to the score. 
Hans Zimmer doing the music for this one. I owned it. I had it on cassette. It was great. I played the hell out of it. I wore it down. I always played, I, I, you know, it was funny in the research. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but there were two sides to the cassette. One had the Hans Zimmer score and the other had the lyrical songs, but I always listened to the Hans Zimmer score. Uh, some great thematic music in there. That's when I was really starting to get turned on to Hans Zimmer. That was right in the beginning for me. And I just loved his unique sound. It's hard to describe the score for this film, but it was unique. Man, when I think of this movie, an early memory has to be just this particular iconic shot, which may come up later on in this podcast. And it happens to be about halfway through the film, a little bit after, actually, when Michael Douglas is in the midst of a chase sequence and he's chasing our bad guy, our main antagonist, Sato. And he's running over a bridge with his gun drawn. And there's like this semi like Mack truck chasing him. It's not even really chasing him. It just happens to be part of the traffic scene, but it looks as if it's running him down on the bridge. So you see Michael Douglas coming up and over the bridge. He's just running, hauling ass after the bad guy. And then this just behemoth of a truck coming up right behind him. And it's really quick and it cuts away really quick, but it's just one of those images. As soon as it happens, you're like, oh my God, that's a great shot. And it looks very dangerous to my I have that down too. It's just one of those things. I wouldn't, it's an early memory. I'm like, I, it's inseparable from this film. When I think of it, I think of that shot. So yeah, of course, Michael Douglas. I'm a huge fan. Always have been. I mean, would this be, this would be our second Michael Douglas film because our second podcast ever of all time on this show was Romancing the Stone. Is that correct? That is correct. So uh, this is our second Douglas film. And yeah, we're fans of Michael Douglas. He, he wears many hats, producer, director, actor. He does it all. But here he's playing the super tough, hardened, flawed cop with a past. So I always remember that. I, I just, I'm a fan of his. So you got to think of Michael Douglas thinking of Black Rain. And then moving on, well, continue with the actors. Got to think about Andy Garcia. I mean, Andy Garcia for me was always the standout for this film. I should have actually brought him up before Michael Douglas, to be honest, because outside of the poster and the iconic shot I just mentioned and the Hans Zimmer score, I think of Andy Garcia in this film, and he's only in the first hour of the movie. But he is so damn charming and vibrant and energetic, and he brings such a a life to this movie, and he really reinforces the bond between detectives. That's between himself, who he plays Detective Charlie Vincent, and Michael Douglas plays Detective Nick Conklin, and they are partners. And Garcia is uh, the junior to Douglas by like a decade, like by 10 years. He's significantly younger than Douglas. And he's funny. And he, he just steals every scene that he's in. So I love Andy Garcia on this. Every time I think of the movie, think of him when he first appears on screen playing the matador. He takes his jacket off and he pretends like he's this this like Spanish matador. And Douglas pulls up on his motorcycle like as if he's the bull charging the matador in the street. And it's uh, it's pretty amusing. But you're like, okay, these guys have an established relationship. And again, that goes back to that's just the memory for me for the film. Like these guys are like brothers and it's just. I don't know. I love their relationship in this movie. Uh, speaking of Charlie, one of the most gut-wrenching scenes of all time in cinema. It's heart, man. I, I can't even rank my earliest memories at this point because I could just shuffle them around. Because if somebody says Black Rain, somebody says that title, 
I think about Charlie losing his head and that's all there is to it. It's a brutal scene. It's a brutal spoiler alert death scene. And I'll leave it at that. We'll get into that later. Charlie and Moss singing some karaoke, a little Ray Charles. That's an early memory. I remember this movie really, really well. I have very strong, vivid memories of this. Kate Capshaw playing Joyce, the club manager in Osaka in the city, and using the word gaijin, which I used in the opening quote, that just sticks with me. That's how I know the word gaijin and what it means is from this movie. It translates as stranger or foreigner or outsider in Japanese. So there you go. You learn a little something sometimes. Uh, Sato, great bad guy. I always loved him. I always thought he was intimidating. I think he has great presence. He's played by the wonderful Yusaku Matsuda in this film. And um, I just like using that affectation, by the way, because they're just really cool names, the Japanese names of these actors, Uh, really strong uh, names, great names. And so, yeah, he's just evil in this. So I love Sato. The, The scene with Sato cutting his own finger off, Uh, I mentioned the relationships in this film. I love the arc of the relationship between uh, Nick, Michael Douglas, that is, and Moss, who is, as you mentioned, uh, Ken Takakura, playing assistant inspector Masahiro, or Moss, Masumoto. I appreciate that relationship. That's a big part of the movie. And uh, here's some other early memories for me. I remember it being a little bit slow-paced at some point that I remembered. I also remembered it having somewhat of an anticlimactic action sequence at the end. I remember my feelings after seeing it for the first time because I had so much anticipation going to see it when it came out with my friends and feeling as though even though it was a bit slow and had a few cheesy lines overall, I liked the tone and the feel of it, the look of it, but it didn't quite meet my expectations. I mean, again, I liked it. I really wanted to love it. I remember that but it didn't quite get there. Remember that too. So I was really looking forward to seeing how it would go down today, watching it today as an adult. I was eagerly anticipating this. Those are my early memories. Uh, How about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, I apologize if it sounds like I'm going to be repeating a lot of what Jason said, but (laughs) unfortunately that's the way it is. Uh, For me, this movie was a rental. And I think the biggest memory for me is the trailer of Douglas running down the road and, and that Mack truck appearing out of nowhere. And I'm thinking, oh, that looks really cool. But then watching the movie itself, it didn't seem as cool. But I mean, what did you really expect? You, you knew it wasn't going to run him over or anything. So what, what could you really do with it? But the shot itself right. is cool. But the way it plays out is a little anticlimactic to me. Yes, Andy Garcia's death scene. That was a tough one. Didn't like seeing it. I mean, you feel as helpless as Michael Douglas does in that scene where he's just watching it happen in front of him and and he could do nothing. Yeah. That's rough. It's awful. So my favorite earliest memories of this movie is from college because we watched this twice in college. One time in my dorm room, and I don't remember, Jason, if you remember this, we actually watched this movie once in your dorm room. Awesome. Back then... Let's just say Andy Garcia was very popular with the ladies. Sure. He definitely had his fan base. And um, I remember telling uh, one of the girls that lived in our wing, you know, because she's saying how much she liked Andy Garcia. I'm like, oh, did you ever see Black Rain? She's like, no. 
And I'm like, oh, you got to come watch it. So like we had a bunch of people in, in our room and basically after Garcia's death, which is like you said, is an hour in the movie. All the girls walked out. They were done. <laughs> that was it. Understandable. So I think us and a couple of guys finished it out. And then probably later in the year is when we watched it in your dorm room. I think we had about like 12 people in there because we usually always packed them in when we had movie nights in either your room or my room. So 12 of us, 12 of us watched it. Four of us made it to the end. Same thing happened. As soon as Andy Garcia died, most of the girls either fell asleep or like, oh, time for me to go to bed. That's great. Yeah. So either everyone was asleep. I think it was you. You were awake. I was awake. I think Tom was awake. I can't remember who the fourth person was, but that was it. Everyone else crashed and burned by then. It all goes downhill after Andy Garcia bites the dust. Right. So I guess my conclusion for this movie is if if you're a female and you have trouble sleeping, you should probably put this movie on and it'll help with your sleep issues. That's that's just what I'm going <laughs> to say about that. that. That's my earliest memory of that movie. It's just like this is not a, a film for the female audience. Maybe it is when you're older, but definitely college age did not work. That's just great, man. I love the earliest memories when they uh, correspond with our college years. Uh, for me, I was going back to my high school years and the crew I would run with and when we mostly just played our video games and laser tag and drank Wildwood soda and went to the movies on Friday nights. And that was a blast. And uh, yeah, Black Rain was one of those movies for us. But during those college years, I, one of my fond memories, speaking of Andy Garcia, I don't know if you recall, were you there, Bill Bent? Because I know you worked with, obviously, the Beaumont slash Cosford Cinema on campus, and we had Andy Garcia come in person uh, and uh, present that film. It was, uh, I, did he produce it? It was about the Cuban musician or musicians. Oh, I missed that uh, it one. It was a documentary, but he was there in person. He uh, did a Q&A up on the stage and was kind enough to come out afterward and shake people's hands. And there was a mob. It was like he got mobbed oh, yeah. immediately. But he he's a cool cat and a good looking man and just a really just a real powerhouse of an actor. I, I've always had an immense, immense respect for his talent as a performer. And a uh, little side story. I know Pat Duty was there for sure because we were both hoping to uh, share a word with Andy Garcia at some point because, you know, we're young filmmakers and big fans of his, et cetera. And I remember doing some research on Andy Garcia beforehand. And I think I had seen him in an interview on a late night talk show saying that he was only like that he was a bit shorter than I thought he was. And like he was about five foot seven. And then seeing him in person, he's closer to like five ten. And it was really funny because I shook his hand and he was I was like, oh, OK. And Pat Duty just kind of made fun of me. He's like, hey, man, well, he's taller than you. <laughs> I was like, Yeah, OK, I get it. But uh, yeah, I, I got to shake Andy Garcia's hand. That's once. awesome. So what are your initial thoughts about Black Rain now? I've got none. Later? None whatsoever. That's it. Really? Wow. Yeah, we're done. Except that's a lie. I have plenty of initial thoughts about the Black Rain. Let's start with Ridley Scott, our director. Now, before the 1980s, of course, he's mostly well known for kicking off the Alien franchise with Alien. In 1979, one of the best sci-fi horror films of all time in the universe of the planet of the world. Now, here's his 80s snapshot. He does Blade Runner in 82. Ever heard of it? Legend in 85. Someone to watch over me in 87. Can't wait to do that one. Then this, Black Rain in 89. After the 80s, 
He has the wonderful Thelma and Louise in 91. Other notables are G.I. Jane in 97, Gladiator in 2000, which wins Best Picture. He does both Hannibal and Black Hawk Down, which are released in 2001. Matchstick Men in 2003. I'm going to go all the way ahead to 2015 when he releases The Martian, starring Matt Damon, of course. And then he's just recently directed The Last Duel in 2021 and House of Gucci in 2021. Matt, he is known for being a prolific director. And it's funny looking over his filmography because in 2001 and 2015, in that span, he does a bunch of films. Some of them are hits. Some of them are misses. Some of them, you know, your mileage may vary. People have a lot of opinions on those films, everything from Kingdom of Heaven to Prometheus, especially. But regardless, at age 85, he's still doing it. He's got Napoleon coming up with Joaquin Phoenix. I am eager to see that. Uh, Fans of both of those gentlemen. So that's coming out soon. And then Gladiator 2 is slated for 2024, starring Paul Mescal. By the way, as another untitled alien prequel. How about that? Uh, And speaking of star sightings or meetings, I had the uh, unique opportunity of meeting him briefly a few years back, working on an earthquake proofing gig with our friend Alex. That was pretty cool. He had that thick kind of like Scottish accent. Nice guy. And I also have a fond memory of attending his American Cinematheque Award ceremony with our friends Pat and Chris, uh, which was a star-studded affair. Speaking of, Matt Damon was there and Christopher Nolan, everybody was there. It was kind of cool. I was starstruck. So that was fun. I'm a big, or I should say we are big Ridley Scott fans on this podcast. Um, Another initial thought, I've been watching the credits and I had forgotten that Jan de Bont is credited as the cinematographer on this. And I was like, oh, no wonder. This is a kick-ass action movie. Of course, Jan de Bond shot this. But we'll talk more about that in our research later on. I love 80s and 90s cop movies. I know this is an 80s podcast, but these types of films were just, it was of a time, it's a specific genre where they're just unapologetically violent and dark and they're lit a certain way and there's smoke-filled rooms and there's a haze and there's a feel about it and it's rough and it's tough and it's gritty and it's edgy and it's cheesy one-liners and it's tropes after tropes after tropes and I can't get enough. And this just kind of falls into that category for me. One of the reasons why I have an attachment to this film. And speaking of tropes, here's an initial thought. In the very beginning of this movie, it's like, they're just like, okay, let's get the all the common veteran hard-nosed cop tropes out of the way. Nick Conklin, our protagonist, played by Michael Douglas, NYPD detective. He just walks into his uh, apartment in New York and is listening to his voice messages. Here's his wife leaving a message, letting him know that they're behind on school payments. And so now it's, and it's also established that she has, uh, I think more custody of the kids that they share. So she's got the custody of the kids. We know that he's divorced. He's light on funds, apparently running behind on school payments. Maybe he's just getting a little bit over the hills, getting a little up there in age. Uh, but still riding a motorcycle and taking risks and trying to to be as young as possible, retaining his youth. And with the second message we hear on his voice machine is from his lawyer telling him to be presentable for a meeting with internal affairs that morning at the precinct. And then, of course, Nick just lights up a smoke right there and starts smoking. And there you go. I mean, there you go. it's a pretty solid picture of who Nick is. There it is. He's that typical cop. And then... Here comes Andy Garcia. Just can't get enough. Like we've been saying, he's like a breath of fresh air. 
He's got the charm, the looks, the attitude. He's fun. You just want to hang out with the guy. You instantly like him, and he brings that relationship together between he and Michael Douglas. Here's another initial thought. Love Sato's entrance. Uh, We get a taste of that Hans Zimmer score. Man, it's just funny, the language in this film, because there's a... I'll get to it later, but both Andy Garcia's and Michael Douglas's characters, that's uh, Nick and Charlie, they... They use the word babe. They call each other babe incessantly, <laughs> nonstop, in this, almost nauseatingly in this movie, which is really interesting choice of language and a, a moniker for your buddy. Instead, they almost use it as a replacement for the word partner, buddy, pal. Instead, they just call each other, hey, babe, how you feeling, babe? Where are we going next, babe? Better get out of here, babe. You know, whatever it is, babe. And I'm like, I don't recall ever calling a male friend of mine, babe. That's an initial thought. Man, again, the look, the feel of this movie is just awesome. The the use of steam and smoke on the streets of New York. We got Michael Douglas in the middle of a motorcycle race in the cold open in this film, and he's just blowing through like a puff of smoke, and it just has a really cool effect. Again, steam and smoke in the back alleys, the packing districts in New York, the warehouses, the haze of everything, as I mentioned, cigarette smoke-filled rooms and airplanes. It all provides mood and a specific style of lighting these types of movies. I'm just going to give a shout out again to Yusaku Matsuda, who plays Sato. He is dark. He had some nice ticks to this character of Sato, our main antagonist. He has this, he does this tilt with his head. He hunches over, he opens his mouth wide, and we don't know if he's going to be hissing or laughing. I just liked his choices in this, uh, as an actor here in this movie. Want to give a shout out again to Ken Takakura as an assistant inspector Masahiro, Mas Matsumoto. I enjoyed his performance in this. He is uh, has a quiet intensity about him. What else? Well, I'm watching the scene. There's a particular scene where detectives Nick and Charlie are now in Japan, and they're sitting around the table with Moss in the police superintendent. And again, it's another smoke-filled room, and it just feels gritty, and it feels lived in, and it feels like you can touch it and taste it, which begs the question, Bill Bant, Williamson, are movies just too clean today? I just miss the grainy film of yesteryear and these gritty cop thriller drama action movies. That's on saying. I'll ask that again in additional thoughts, maybe in questions. So I absolutely love that Michael Douglas is like a bull in a china shop in this movie, a stranger in a strange land, but he just doesn't give a shit. And uh, obviously, Charlie is a character that evens him out a bit, but Nick is going to do what he's going to do. He hates the suits. He hates the bureaucracy. He's got a bone to pick with everybody, so he's aggressive, abrasive, and insulting, including mispronouncing Sato's name in the beginning. He's always calling Sato. just think that's kind of a smart choice. Uh, We have that built-in relationship between Nick and Charlie, as I've mentioned many times already, but uh, the relationship arc that really occurs in this film is between Nick and Matsumoto, or uh, Mas, Masahiro, and uh, I love how that relationship is antagonistic for a while in this film, so... I'm just going to say I love the first half of the arc of that relationship. I was I wish there was more of a resolution to that arc, but I'll get into that later. Love the fact that the cops have to use walkie-talkies in this. There were no cell phones in 89. I appreciate the cultural differences in this movie, the cultural philosophies which are presented here. I wish there was actually more of that in it. Inspector Masa working as part of a group obedient to tradition and the Osaka police force in this movie versus Nick, who's working as an individual rogue cop, kind of uh, working outside of Osaka's laws. And um, yeah, man, you know what? I 
I still think this movie rocks. I really do. I really enjoyed watching this, but I'll be honest at about the hour to hour and a 30 minute mark, the film slows down severely. Uh, we leave the city landscape of Osaka, Japan, and we move into the countryside and the movie takes on a different feel completely. The ending is somewhat anticlimactic for me. I'm not sure the film takes advantage of some, some of the themes that were present up to that point. It's certainly not terrible. It's just gets stuck in mud, both literally and figuratively at the end. So the first three quarters of the film do a lot of the work, enough so that the tag at the end of the movie with uh, Masa and Nick kind of parting ways at the airport still resonates with me. So I appreciate that. And so, yeah, overall, still enjoyed this viewing experience. What about you, Bill Band? What are your initial thoughts of Black Rain? Initial thoughts. Yeah, lots of steam and smoke in this movie. And I'm not <laughs> talking about Joyce bumming a cigarette from Nick. Right. It's a beautiful shot movie. I'll agree with that. Everything on the screen has a purpose. It looks great. I just wish they put that kind of time into the story. I was going to say the writing, but you have so many winning lines in this, such as, I usually get kissed before I get fucked. You watch your tail, cowboy. One good hand job deserves another. Look, you want to charge me? You charge me, okay? You want to jerk off? You go back to your office. And if you pull it, you better use it. Yeah. Yeah, this movie has a story problem. Initially, the Japanese authorities should have just told Nick and Charlie to go fuck themselves and get back on the plane. I mean, at least they got Sato to Japan. So there's a start. The movie, for me, falls under not liking it as much now as I did back then, unfortunately. Hmm. Okay. I didn't understand the Michael Douglas character this time around. I mean, he catches Sato and is pissed that the Japanese embassy wants him. You know what? Great. Less crap I have to deal with. Take them. Paperwork. And it's not like Sato killed two fellow cops or even Americans. There were Japanese mobsters. So in a way, Sato was helping him out by taking care of the problems. I don't understand why he was so hung up on having to catch Sato. Just because of that, it just made the rest of the story not really work for me. The two characters I enjoyed the most were Charlie and Masahiro. Uh, you know, Andy Garcia and Ken Takakura. I wanted a fish out of water story. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn about Japanese culture, uh, not in a cop screaming, calling everyone assholes because he thinks he's better. I mean, would the story have worked better if Nick maybe didn't take the money, but he knew who did, but didn't want to rat out his fellow officers? And he's dealing with the guilt of knowing that he was close to taking the money too. And there's just that whole did he or didn't he aspect to it. I just think the Nick character needs to take it down to about a six. And the issue was, if I don't care about the main character, how am I going to care about the movie? So that's my initial thoughts. Yeah, fair enough. Good stuff, man. I have to say, I agree with most of your thoughts, especially, yeah, with the character of Nick Conklin, played by Michael Douglas. I mean, he does not have a real arc as an individual. He doesn't mature. He doesn't uh, learn to work as a team, you know, as part of a team or part of a group. And I'm going to get more into that commentary later. So I completely agree with that. He's like a tornado in every Yeah, it definitely has a story problem and and a bit of a, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He doesn't, uh, it's not as if he learns anything or matures at any point or, you know, he has some nice moments with Moss that I like a lot, especially yeah. because you see how antagonistic their relationship is in the beginning of the film. And then they learn to work together. 
but that's where it stops. Then he never budges. He never changes. He doesn't grow. There's no like, oh, I realize the error of my ways. I'm going to be a better man, a better police officer. I've learned something from Moss and how Moss likes to operate or operates within a team, a group, a system, etc. Or he's never put in a place where he's forced to change. He just does, literally does whatever he wants and runs rampant throughout the film. Not a lot of growth with his character. Now, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Black Ring? So, yeah, here we go. Favorite scenes and moments. Well, my first favorite scene, I'm going with Sato's entrance. I had mentioned this earlier. Now, at this point in the film, we have been introduced to NYPD detectives Nick Conklin and Charlie Vincent. Uh, We've got Nick as this hard-edged, middle-aged cop. We know he's got internal affairs up his ass about a bus that went down the year previous and some cash went missing, and uh, they're accusing him him of taking that money, being on the take, if you will. So at this point, Nick has met with the Internal Affairs Department, the IAD, for an interview with his lawyer, and uh, that happens at the precinct and, well, doesn't go so well. So afterward, he's made plans to meet his junior partner, Charlie Vincent, uh, for lunch at what seems to be their usual spot, an Italian restaurant, somewhere kind of tucked away in the meatpacking district of uh, New York City. They go in, they clearly know the bartender named Joey, so they're regulars there. And when Nick actually arrives at the restaurant, he notices some mafiosos, some mobsters sitting at a table having some lunch with a couple of Japanese gentlemen. And Nick comments that this is, uh, well, not a good look for him coming out of the meeting he just had with Internal Affairs to walk into a restaurant where uh, mobsters are hanging out. But he saunters up next to his junior partner, Charlie, and they have a couple of drinks. And I'm like, wait, are they off duty? He's going to have some scotch. And I think Charlie's having a glass of wine. I was like, okay, well, I guess that's okay. When all of a sudden, out of the blue, a couple of younger Japanese men enter the restaurant somewhat unnoticed. And this is Koji Sato and one of his henchmen. And Sato looks intimidating with his dark sunglasses on his spiky black hair, his clean, sharp facial features, and he's wearing a black overcoat tied around the waist. Uh, And he's got actually a few henchmen that come in with him. But one in particular yells out abruptly, putting Nick and Charlie on alert. They spin around and that henchman pulls a machine gun out of his coat and pretends to spray bullets everywhere, just making a sound effect with his mouth. He doesn't actually shoot. He just makes gun noises, and it scares the hell out of everybody. It works. It's effective because everyone just freezes. And now Sato then approaches the table with the mob characters and the Japanese gentleman kind of in an aggressive fashion and speaking in Japanese, and there is no subtitles. We don't know what he's saying, which I think is kind of effective, actually, in this scene. And he moves behind the older Japanese gentleman and reaches around him from behind and pulls a box wrapped in brown paper from the gentleman's coat pocket. Meanwhile, now Nick and Charlie, the detectives are watching as onlookers in the background, this tension-filled scene, and they're watching with their due vigilance, having their guns at the ready if something goes awry here, because this isn't feeling right. Obviously, I mean, one of the henchmen's got a gun drawn. So when Sato turns to leave with this box that he's taken off the older gentleman, the gentleman at the table, the Japanese gentleman, clearly say something to Sato in Japanese that offends him. And he has one of his henchmen come over and take the box from him, which he does. And then Sato turns back to these gentlemen. Suddenly, he pulls a knife and stabs the younger gentleman in the chest right there, murder in cold blood in front of everybody. 
and slices the throat of the older Japanese gentleman. It's interesting here because the mobsters at the table don't act. You can hear them saying in the background, actually saying, just mind our business, mind your business. But as Sato goes to exit, well, then Nick and Charlie do jump into action. And this is funny, too, because that's where right before that happens, you hear Charlie go to the bartender. He goes, Joey, babe, 911, babe. <laughs> just fun. Calling everybody babe in this movie. Just kind of weird. Uh, but then there is a bit of an action sequence that, of course, ensues as Nick and Charlie give chase. Nick chases Sato down in the middle of a uh, meat packing area, and uh, you get the swinging meat swinging back and forth in the freezer, in the locker. And Nick kind of gets his ass handed to him by Sato that jumps on him at first, but then Nick ends up getting the best of him. And uh, I don't want to get into too much detail there, but that's how they apprehend Sato and bring him to the precinct downtown. But my preference in this whole sequence is just Sato's entrance. Uh, It's intimidating. It's cool. You get that eerie Hans Zimmer score in the background. It's tension filled. And Sato just committing murder out in the open was a bit of a shock. And I remember that. That's kind of an earliest memory. So yeah, it's an effective scene. It's a great way to introduce the antagonist. And we know this is one bad dude. Okay, I like this bad guy. Let's see where this goes. Yeah, I think I agree with you that Sato is a pretty good villain. And the fact that when this scene plays out, you don't know what's going on. They are talking to each other in Japanese and you have no idea what they're saying. So it's a mystery to you as much as it is Nick and Charlie. I kind of like that, that you don't figure out right away what is going on. I did find it funny when Sato kills the two gentlemen and the mobster says, yeah, just keep eating. Just keep eating. It's okay. No, it's one of those it's nothing not our to business. see here. Because they, there's like that unwritten or unspoken code where they're like, these are other gangsters taking care of business. It may be in our city or on our turf somewhat, but it's not our problem. Yep. But yeah, that is a pretty good uh, entrance. And you just throughout the movie, you just find out who this person is and more about him and that he's a bad dude. Not that you didn't know that from here, but he's a lot worse than we thought. So yeah, good first pick. Really good uh, establishing our villain. Right. Yeah. And he's got a great look and it's just tension filled because it's a it's a restaurant filled with innocent bystanders. So you kind of put yourself in the shoes of the detectives. Like, what would you do in that scenario? You can't just have an open gunfight in the middle of this crowded restaurants. It's like, what are they going to do in this scenario? They just kind of have to watch it play out and then wait for something to happen, unfortunately, which is quite violent for them to then jump into action and pursue them outside of the restaurant. It's a cool setting, cool setup in that particular scenario. What's your first favorite scene, Bill Bant? All right, I'm kind of jumping way ahead here, so I might be maybe jumping over one of your favorite scenes, but I'll just fill in the blanks. So... As you mentioned, Sato gets captured. Nick wants to put him in jail and his supervisor comes to him, uh, played by John Spencer, says, nope, Japanese embassy wants him. So they get him. Not your case anymore. And Nick gets really pissed off about this. And because Nick is being investigated by internal affairs, his supervisor also tells him, well, you're going to take him to Japan and hand him over to the Japanese authorities, which he's not too happy about either. So him and Charlie fly over there with Sato. They go to hand him over and they come to find out they handed him over to the wrong people. There were people dressed up as police officers and now Sato has gotten away. And Nick is not happy about this either. And he wants to stay in Japan and capture him. And the Japanese authorities say, nope, that's on us now. You guys effed up. Go. But Nick 
through all his screaming and yelling, gets himself and Charlie to stay, and they say they can only stay as observers. So the first night of observing, they hear about a murder in this uh, bar area, and um, they go and they find a dead body, and the dead body is one of the fake cops that picked up Sato. And also in this scene, we meet the character of Joyce, played by Kate Capshaw. We find out that Joyce has been living out in Japan for the last eight years. She speaks Japanese, and she runs this bar and runs the women that go through this bar. And Nick thinks, cool, American-American, let me talk to this woman. And maybe she'll give me some information because the Japanese authorities are not really telling him anything. And it's just enraging him. So he starts questioning Joyce. And Joyce is very sarcastic to him, saying, I don't know who killed this person. It's not like the person gave me his name and address before he walked out the door. Someone got killed. I don't know what else you want from me. And this exchange happens. And then what I liked about this is a little bit of edge that Kate Capshaw has as Joyce and just the fact that you really find out a little more about Sato, that this is not something that's a surprise to anyone in Japan. So Nick comes at Joyce with, why are you busting my ass for? And Joyce replies, because you can get me killed, detective. You see, there's a war going on here, and they don't take prisoners. And Nick is excited because he's like, what are you talking about? And she responds with, it's between Sato and old-time boss, a guy named Sugai. And Nick's like, well, who knows about this? And Joyce replies, counting you and me? And Nick's excited, like, oh, he's going to get some inside dirt. And he's like, yeah. And she replies, 11 million. All of Japan knows about Sato and Sugai. And this is bigger than anything that Nick would fathom. And uh, he's got his work cut out for him. I just thought that was just kind of funny how she just comes back with that, making it sound like this is an underground thing. But everybody knows what the hell is going on, and you should just stay out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Love it, man. I do like Kate Capshaw in this film. I do like her character. I like the way she plays it, as if she really is the one that can challenge Nick's personality a little bit, his character. But love that line. Outside of you and me, 11 11 million people. Because, yeah, it is the entire country. And that's an interesting thing when we see this in TV shows and cinema when it comes to the Japanese mob, if you will, or mafia being the Yakuza and how it seems or it's portrayed this way. And I don't know Jack about the Yakuza. Uh, So please correct me if I'm wrong. Please email us if you know any history about the Yakuza. The way they are portrayed in film and television, it seems as though they do operate somewhat in the open. They do their business in the open. It's not necessarily, it's not behind closed doors as People know that they're there. They know who they are. They know they're present. The same could be said for the American mafia. It's not as if they're trying to hide either, but it seems like they're just there. Everybody knows. So she's making that point in that scene. So what do you got next for her favorite scene in the moment? I was going to say real quick, too, about her character. I do appreciate the fact that she's got to walk a fine line. Like So that's the whole thing, is that she can't be seen helping him outright, at least not in the beginning, because she's made her life there, and she's kind of ingrained in that culture at this point. And it would be kind of a betrayal to them. And as everybody knows everything, they would know if she was helping him. And the word would get out probably to the wrong people. She'd be in a lot of trouble, so it's an awful risk. Uh, My next scene... I'm going to make this as brief as possible. I was going to say it was a moment, but it is technically a scene. And I'm just going to say it's the karaoke scene. It's in in that nightclub in Osaka where Joyce works because it's a moment of levity in an otherwise heavier cop thriller drama. 
And at this point, we know that Nick and Charlie have been just observers and they've been paired with the local inspector of the Osaka Police Department, who is Matsumoto, uh, nicknamed Mas. His first name is Masahiro, so they call him Mas. And Mas is by the book and he's kind of playing it close to the vest and playing it. He's in the system. He's part of the police department and he plays by the rules. Well, Nick doesn't like to play by the rules, and so he and Moss are butting heads because Nick wants to cut through all the red tape, get his guy, Sato. But again, Moss is holding back. Well, at this point, you know, Nick actually had stole some counterfeit bills that Moss told his boss about, and that didn't go over well with Nick, and they just have different ways of operating with different principles and way of achieving goals. Regardless, they end up back at this nightclub, and they're having drinks, now, they see Moss over uh, at the bar, and they call him over to come over. And I should say Charlie calls him over. And Nick isn't necessarily happy to see him. And they start button heads again, even though Moss is like, case is going to go on. It's going to continue here. And Charlie just wants to defuse the situation, wants to make peace. Nick gets upset. He walks off. And... It's just fun because now there's the ladies are sitting around with Charlie. He's having a good time. He's got a couple drinks in him. He decides to give Moss a gift. He gives him his own tie. He's like, you got to get rid of that Kmart tie. Here's my tie, my gift to you. And in the background, there's some karaoke happening. And this is just the charm of Andy Garcia. He stands up. He doesn't like the, the way the karaoke has been going thus far this evening. And he decides to take over. He gets up on stage. He gives the piano player some instructions. And they catch the tune that he's wanting to carry. And that tune happens to be What I'd Say by Ray Charles. And he starts singing away. And it's just great. It's a great moment of levity. Annie Garcia is just kind of a, a bright shining light in the scene. And he gets Moss to come up with him on stage to perform this song. And it's really funny because they're singing out of tune. And Moss is really awkward. And it's just a fun scene. I think of this scene actually, too, as an earliest memory. For some reason, this movie is really ingrained in my mind, every little detail. So I always appreciated that scene. It's just fun. Yeah, it's a good scene. And then it's kind of a sad scene because it's the last time you see Charlie and, and Moss together. Yep. That goes right into my next scene. No, you can go for it because I was going to do the scene after that. Because even though that scene is a memorable scene, I can't say it's a favorite scene because right. I think we lose one of the best characters in the movie. So you can go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it is... You know, a scene that's so memorable, and it's hard to say it's my favorite, but I just appreciate the way it's shot, uh, the way it's performed. It's a great action sequence, and it's well-directed. And this is when uh, Charlie literally loses his head. It's a it's an upsetting sequence. At this point now, Nick and Charlie are detectives who are weaponless. They have no guns. They're just observers, and they're really banging their heads against the wall because they haven't gotten far in this case and chasing down Sato and they leave the club after that karaoke scene and they're having a conversation. They give a little credit to Moss actually for picking up the bills, putting it on the, the police department's tab. And all of a sudden then a Japanese motorcyclist, a biker starts riding his motorcycle around them. And this annoys them because it actually had happened earlier in the film. And it was a bit of a form of intimidation because there was a bit this like a biker gang appears out of nowhere in the middle of the city just cool because you have all these neon lights and you got these bikers coming in and it's kind of eerie and they were riding circles around him and kind of yelling at him. And then they just took off. And now this particular sequence, after they walk out of the club, it's just a single rider who comes out and they're like, Oh, here we go again. 
And once again, Charlie, at this point, there's a callback to the earlier scene in the film when he was playing Matador for Nick. He decides to play Matador again, takes off his coat, but this time for the Japanese biker. And the biker goes for it. So he revs his engine and, re- and goes right through Charlie's jacket, and, or I should say coat, overcoat, and he steals it. He steals it. He just takes it right from Charlie and rides off with it, goes about 100 feet or so and stops and turns around. And Charlie's like, I want my coat back. Give it back to me. And he's pissed because his passport's in the coat. So Nick's trying to get Charlie to calm down. But then the biker spits on the coat and says, fuck you. And Nick then is now on on board here with Charlie. He's like, hey, don't make it personal. And then the biker takes off with Charlie's coat. Charlie's yelling after him and starts booking it. He starts running after the biker. And Nick's like, Charlie, Charlie, hey, Charlie, come back. Because Nick... This kind of has the sixth sense. You can kind of see it where he's sensing this is not good. So the biker takes off on his motorcycle, leading Charlie down an escalator and into a dark and seemingly like isolated, uh, somewhat abandoned parking garage. Meanwhile, Nick now is chasing after Charlie. So he's running after Charlie, but he's way behind. And he goes down the escalator and takes a wrong turn in running after Charlie. So now we see Charlie follow the biker into this parking garage and the biker stops and he drops Charlie's coat into a puddle on the ground. Now Charlie's super pissed. He's like, oh shit, oh shit. And Charlie just wants to get his hands on this biker guy. When the biker starts revving his engine as if he's signaling, and he is most definitely signaling several other bikers who show up and now surround Charlie, who is by himself. Because, as I mentioned, Nick took a wrong turn, He does end up in the parking garage, but in a different section, which has been blocked off by this like steel mesh gate. So Nick can see through the gate and he can see Charlie on the other side, surrounded by these bikers, but he can't get to him. He's just watching from the distance. And so these bikers are circling Charlie and it's not good. Charlie's being antagonistic and these guys are yelling at him. And one of the bikers pulls a small blade and just runs by him and sticks him a couple times. It's just brutal because he is so vulnerable. And as you said earlier, poor Nick is watching and he's just going, oh no, no. And he can't do anything but watch. And then who shows up? Of course, Sato there on his bike. And he looks back at Nick and sees that Nick is helpless on the other side of the gate and then looks back at Charlie and pulls out a, or I should say unsheathes a longer blade. And he just revs his engine, he's spinning his wheel and he goes right at Charlie and he drags the blade along the cement and the sparks are flying. It's a great visual as if he's heating up the blade and you see Charlie just standing there helpless and he's hunched over because he's been stabbed and cut a couple times. So he's bleeding and he's hanging his head, and Sato takes advantage as he approaches quickly on his bike, and he slices right through Charlie's neck, separating his head from his body, and decapitates Charlie. And you just see that shot of Michael Douglas, of Nick, just going, No! It's awful. He's forced to watch. And you just see Charlie's body fall to the ground, slumped over, and that's it. And there's, it ends with this great shot from a distance. It's kind of, a, it's a long shot where you see Nick in the distance, just kind of his silhouette with his hands up on the gate, 
looking through from a ways. And uh, it's heartbreaking because Charlie was the life of the movie. <laughs> he was the levity. Yes, he was the he comic was. relief. He was the energy. You wanted him to be there the whole time. You just look forward to him being there and uh, the camaraderie he had with both Moss and, of course, Nick. And so his death hits home. It's very impactful. It's a tough scene, but I had to, to break it down because um, it's an important scene in the movie. I think it is, to be honest, somewhat iconic. It's very identifiable or uh, much associated with this movie, I should say. Yeah, I agree. It's, man, it's one of the bigger scenes in the movie. It was such a shock watching it the first time and seeing that happen. It was so unexpected. So violent. It just hits hard because another role that Charlie was really playing is he was kind of the go-between between Nick and the Japanese authorities. I mean, he was the one that was kind of the peacekeeper to kind of keep Nick somewhat in control. And now that control is gone. And the fact that Nick has lost his partner, he's just going to get more crazy. So, yeah, it's rough. Just watching it again. It's the toughest scene of the movie for sure. Yep. It's hard to watch because it's not as if Charlie just gets run through by a sword or something like that. I mean, he's, he is beheaded. It's extremely, it's very graphic. You do see it. And honestly, I was watching it and I was like, because you see the shot of the blade go through his neck and you're like, how did they do it? It looks really realistic. And I was like, oh, should I go back and freeze frame it to see how they did it? And I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I was like, nope, I hate this scene. I love it, but I hate it. I love it because it is so impactful and it makes me feel something and it, it, it's so effective, but I couldn't watch it again. Yeah. And I think what even makes it worse is Nick is so helpless. Like yeah. part of you wants to scream, like run and try to help him, but you know, he couldn't do anything. There's you no way never he could gotten there him. in time. No, exactly. So you're just stuck watching your partner and you're not expecting your partner to get beheaded. And that's what happens. That's, that's a gut punch right there. Absolutely gut-wrenching. Yeah. All right. So for my next favorite scene, and I think this is going to unfortunately jump over what your next favorite scene is. So Charlie has passed. Nick ends up spending the night at Joyce's place just because he's he's a mess right now. And Joyce heard what happened and she's trying to console him. And then um, Masahiro shows up and they have a quick conversation. And Nick decides, I got to avenge my partner. And he tells Masahiro he wants to go back to the original hideout that they went to early in the film where they first found the counterfeit money because you find out there's a whole counterfeit operation that's going on. And that little box that Sato gets at the beginning of New York is one of the plates for the counterfeit money. So I call the scene that's the always something because they go back to the hideout and Nick is for sure convinced that the Japanese authorities have missed something in this hideout and they're going to find it. And this is going to help them find Sato. And he starts going through rummaging through the place and he can't find anything. And the more he's looking through, the more angrier he gets. And to say that Nick is losing his cool is an understatement. Anything that is upright is on the ground. Anything that he can dislodge in this building, he's taking it down. And he rips the whole place apart and he finds nothing. And you're like, oh shit, they're at a dead end. And you think for sure watching all these movies, they're gonna find, they were going to find something. You really thought they were going to find something. And they really find nothing. Masahiro's like, 
look, Nick, this is a dead end. We should leave. There's nothing there. And then I love this because to me, it felt like a callback to Blade Runner because I was just going to say that I was going to say the exact same thing. Nick sits down on a sofa and there's a coffee table in front of him. And all of a sudden we see these little round things and you're not really sure what they are. And first I was like, are they some kind of like drugs? Is this all about maybe drugs or something? And he picks it up and he shows it to Masahiro and he's like, sequence, sequence. And Masahiro's not sure exactly why he's showing him this. But we find out earlier in the movie through Joyce is... Sato had a a regular girl he would see every once in a while. And Nick had seen a woman in a coat that had these same exact sequence. So he knows this is probably from Sato's girl. And this could be their connection on how to find Sato. If we find the girl, we might find her. So I like that your first thought going to the scene is they're going to find some huge missing piece of evidence that's going to help them find Sato and you don't really find anything. And then just that it so much reminded me of Blade Runner and the snake scales that Deckard finds to track down one of the replicants. I was like, oh, wow, a little parallel there. It's a cool moment if you're Ridley Scott or Blade Runner fan. A hundred percent. I'm glad you brought that up because I literally wrote down, oh, Ridley Scott is clearly a fan of sequins as in dress sequins. But then I realized I was mistaken that it's actually snake scales because I remember like, wait, Deckard doesn't find sequins. When I watch Blade Runner, I'm like, oh, those are sequins from Zora's dress, the stripper in the movie and in that fiction. But no, they're actual snake scales because she uses a snake in her act. Yes. But it's the same idea. It's a detective finding a clue that's very similar. I think that is done with intention. If, especially you and I both had the same exact thought. You're like, oh, that's just like Blade Runner. I mean, there has to be some correlation there. Uh, so I, th- I thought that was cool. I enjoyed that scene because you see, you really see Nick, his character come out in the way that he is just full of, emo- he's an emotional mess. He's full of rage and he's acting out. He's just destroying this hideout looking for any clue and Hans Zimmer's score just builds. There's some great music and Moss just kind of lets him do it. He lets Nick get that out because Nick is distraught over losing Charlie the way he did and just losing him in general. So he has to get it out of his system. And then you're watching it though, as a viewer going, where's this going? Wow. They literally didn't find anything. We just watched Nick go nuts but then it still has a purpose because finally when he sits down and then he sees the sequence. So it's a great moment at the end. And that kind of correlates to the scene previous, which I'll just get break down real quick because that was my last, I'm going to say favorite moment actually, because when just after Charlie dies, as you mentioned, Nick has gone over to Joyce's apartment and he's drowning in his sorrows and Moss comes over and wants to have a, a word alone with Nick and Joyce allows that. And Moss expresses his condolences for the loss of Charlie, saying he wished he had been there. Maybe it would have been different. And then he goes on to say that he has Charlie's things. So Moss has a box with Charlie's belongings in it. And he says, uh, we have a tradition when someone close to us dies, we keep something personal of his. And Nick says, can we do this another time? And Moss replies, please, Nick's on. And they sit down and they go through Charlie's personal things in this box. 
Nick takes out Charlie's badge and gives it to Moss as a token of appreciation. Moss is very grateful and takes the badge. And then Nick pulls out Charlie's gun. Now, earlier in the film, detectives Nick and Charlie had their guns taken away from them because they are only to be observers on this case. But now Nick receives Charlie's belongings. He takes the gun from the box and says to Moss, I can take anything that I want. And Moss says, anything. And it's a great moment because the music drums like kick in like doom, doom. And that's when Nick says, I want to go back to Sato's hideout, just you and me. And Moss just simply nods in agreement like, yeah, they're teaming up now and they're going off the grid. Love that moment when he takes the gun from the box. Oh, yeah. We're doing this for Charlie. Yeah. Like you, then you know, it's like, oh, we're going to ramp up and just start kicking ass and taking names. So here we go. Because it's a relationship building moment between Moss and Nick. And it's one of those things where it's a, a slower, quieter scene. And you're like, we know this is a tender moment. We're feeling the emotion of what happened just previously. But you're also going as an audience member, how does this scene serve the story? How does it push the story forward? As somber as the scene is, it does have a purpose. Again, at the end, when he pulls the gun out of the box, you're like, oh, now I have a gun. I can use Charlie's gun and we can go get this bastard. Then in the following scene that you broke down, Bill, same kind of thing. It's like, why are we watching this? And at the end, a clue presents itself in the form of the sequence. It's cool. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. For my last favorite scene, it's uh, basically uh, Nick and uh, Moss having noodles while on stakeout. They track down the hopefully girlfriend of Sato and they follow her and hope that she's going to lead her to Sato so they can finally arrest, capture, kill. We don't know. So they're basically on stakeout. They're outside her building and they're and they're eating. Masahiro says to Nick, I heard some disturbing things about you in New York. Can you talk to me about it if, if you feel comfortable with it? And Nick tells him, yeah, a couple of guys I used to work with in the department took some money for some drug dealers and, you know, no big deal. And uh, Masamoto comes back. So they stole. And uh, Nick doesn't agree with his terms that he said. And he said, no, you know, they, they liberated some funds. And Moss comes back with, well, the theft is theft and there's no gray area. And Nick kind of laughs at it and says, uh, hey, Matsu, New York is one big gray area. And then there's kind of a pause and Masahiro asks Nick, hey, did you also steal some of this money? And you can see right then, because we don't know at this point if Nick had done it or not, but the guilt certainly comes across his face and he's says, yeah, he did it, and he didn't feel proud of it. And he asks him why, and he's just like, you know, being divorced and kids in school, I just didn't have the money. That was the only way I can get my hands on it. Mots comes back with the question. He's like, did Charlie know? And luckily, Nick's like, no, he, he didn't know anything about it. And Matsu says, you know, you disgrace him for doing that, and you disgrace yourself, and you disgrace me. Nick doesn't really say anything. And after he says that, Masahiro takes the drink that's on the table and actually fills Nick's glass and I think in a way, just kind of understanding and saying, okay, I know you did a bad thing, but I'm, you know, I'm still going to ride with you through this. And Nick just comes back with a, with a thanks. He just says, thanks. And that's kind of where the scene goes. And it's really the first time we see Michael Douglas almost play like a normal person at this point. Cause he's just been wild and crazy the whole time. 
And now this whole moment kind of brings him back down to earth and you kind of feel like maybe it's going to be a turning point for him just to kind of really think about what he did and what the effect it has on not only himself, but others. I don't think he changes too much afterwards, to be honest. Nope. It was a great moment. I kind of wish there was a little more of this throughout the movie. Not as slow, but just the characters trying to feel each other out and just work their differences out. And even though Nick had made a mistake, Matsuhiro does forgive him and understands they both have the same goal. Sato, bring him to justice. I'm glad you chose this particular scene. I love this scene. It is a quieter scene. And... You're absolutely right. I wish there was more of it. This is relationship development, which I'm always harping on on this podcast because it's essential and it's what makes for good film. It's what we relate to. We're human beings. We want to see relatable relationships that develop in realistic ways. And in this particular situation, we've seen them butting heads, but then they come together over Charlie's death and work together to get this truly evil guy in Sato. But they have to have this heart to heart. They have to clear the air, at least from Masa's perspective, where he needs to know whom he is working with. He has to have a better understanding and he attempts to have a better understanding of the man sitting across from him, whom is Nick. And Nick is severely flawed. And these two couldn't be further on the further ends of the spectrum here is how they operate as police officers and what they believe in and what their principles are. So it makes complete sense. And Nick finally has a really vulnerable moment and says, yeah, I'm not proud of it. But also because of how simply and straightforward that Moss lays it out for him, saying that you disgrace Charlie, yourself, me, you see it in Michael Douglas's eyes as a performer. He does feel some real guilt and shame. And you're like, okay, there can be forgiveness here because Moss pours him the drink. We can see he can maybe change like from this moment on, be better, be a better man, be a better cop and honor those you work with and the memory of those that uh, we've lost, etc. So that's a gr- what a great jumping off point for then their relationship and then the development and the arc of their relationship to continue. And it doesn't. It stalls completely right there. Yes, it does. Because we see from Moss's side, he's trying to adapt a little bit and understand Nick's ways, but Nick never adapts or changes or molds to anything of how Moss operates from there on in. It's like, where's the teamwork? Or like I said, growth with Nick's character. You see more of it from Moss's side of things, I think. Because he has to kind of acquiesce to the way that Nick operates throughout the rest of the movie. He has to go join him and be a kind of a rogue cop instead of the other way around. Good scene. Yeah. I think there's still another half hour of movie after this that Mm -hmm. we didn't put into any of our favorite scenes. So, yeah, it does get a little slow and disjointed after this. But, hey, it is what it is. All right. So let's move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Ah, because although this movie is delicious, it does have knife holes. Yeah. <laughs> extended, long, extended blade holes. Yep, and it doesn't have any of those blade holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, you have any Swiss cheese or complaints? Yeah, sure. I mean, this movie is far from perfect. I still found it enjoyable, but uh, I have a question for you, William Hassan. Yes. Now, I think you touched upon this earlier and I was going to wait to bring it up until now, so here we are. The plan in the beginning, in this movie, was for Charlie and Nick as NYPD detectives to escort Sato back to Japan. 
to turn him over to the Japanese authorities, as was commanded by the higher ups, whether it be the Japanese embassy or the government officials. Someone handed down the order saying, nope, you're turning him over to the Japanese and you are also going to escort him all the way back to Japan. Great. So when they get to Japan, when they get to Osaka airport, they lose Sato to the police impersonators but then deem it their duty to retrieve Sato. So my question is, though, was that just out of embarrassment and they feel they owe it to themselves or the Japanese authorities? Because once they do, what's, you know, they do retrieve Sato, what was their plan then? They still have to turn him over to the Japanese authorities, right? Yeah. Well, there is a scene when they're at the station and Nick's on the phone and I yeah, think he's talking Eternal, to he's right. captain. Yeah. And Eternal Affairs thinks that this was all a setup, that Nick did this on purpose to get some more money. Right. That somehow he was colluding with Sato. Right. He's hoping that his reputation and track record will prove that he's not a dirty cop and that the fact that he brings Sato in would bring favor with him among eternal affairs. What he did was wrong. I mean, that whole scene is kind of a mess, to be honest, because, okay, I understand why they send Nick to Japan just because of the eternal affairs investigation, and they just want him to calm down because he had a meeting with them and totally blows up. Surprise, surprise. And his supervisor feels like if you go, then just let this blow over, come back, reset, and everything will be fine. But the issue is, why did they not go with someone from the Japanese embassy? There should have been a representative with them. I agree. It doesn't make any sense, really. And then on the other standpoint is, we find out that Sato is such a big deal. I guess, you know, if we have our America's Most Wanted in our top 10, Sato is like in the top three. So you would think the security would be, I don't even think they'd take the plane to the gate. As soon as it touched down, they would have the whole Japanese police department there. They'd have a contingency plan right away as soon as this plane touched down to make sure that they got Sato off the plane. Agreed. Right. Then these four or five guys just come in the back, take Sato and leave. And then you have the Japanese authorities coming in through the front gate and be like, oh, what, what happened? It was like, there's no way someone should have got that close to the plane. Totally agree. To me, that's some major Swiss cheese. Yeah, it's full of blade holes. <laughs> um, yeah. I agree. One, totally agree. Why are Nick and Charlie escorting Sato back to Japan? Wouldn't it be Japanese officials that escort Sato back to Japan? Right. That's only logical. Why is it NYPD detectives? Why do they have to be the ones? Unless it's specifically, yes, to get kind of Nick off the streets for the time being, for him to cool down a little bit. And because it was Nick's color, it was Nick that apprehended Sato. So maybe that gives him some satisfaction to make sure he's the one that gets to bring him in technically by taking him to Japan. Okay, I sort of buy it. Does Still doesn't make any sense that a Japanese official wouldn't be there as well to escort Sato back to Japan and turn him over to Japanese authorities. But then once they arrive, you're right, there would be so much more pomp and circumstance because Sato is such a, a nefarious character and well-known, clearly. So it seems to just be because... We need the story to move along. We need these characters in these positions in the story. We need these NYPD detectives to be fish out of water in Japan. This is the setup. 
and we need to get them over there. And that's my question is then, well, what's the point? Yes, okay, they lose Sato. They turn him over to the wrong people. Sato gets away. Fine, but the end is still the same. He's whether he, you know, whoever captures him, he still stays in Japan. It's not as if when Nick and Charlie, if they collar him again, they save the day, they may get credit for the collar, but they don't get to take him back to America and press charges and, you know, bring him up on charges in America. And it's still right. That's I agree. That's at my- that point, it's really about them saving face. It's about Nick saving face because they're embarrassed. They have been embarrassed by allowing Sato to slip through their fingers. And now they're trying to save their rep and try to do right. I guess is it's the honorable thing to do to try and stay there and fix their mistake. I'm looking for the point in all of it, I guess. Right. But, uh, yeah. The exchange makes no sense too. Cause even they should have said Nick and Charlie, this is who you're going to meet at the gate and gave names, not just some random officers are going to come in and take Sato. This is not some street thug. This is a higher up who has done horrible things. He's a high level yuck member of the Yakuza. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so you should know exactly who you're turning this over to. And then, yeah, my, my other issue is the whole thing with Nick, my collar, my case. Why do you care so much? It's another country's problem. Let it be their problem. I'm sure you have plenty things to do in New York. You're plenty busy. Yeah, I agree. He throws a stink about everything. <laughs> Let them handle it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I just would have stayed on the plane and just said, just turn it around and, and take me back. Oh, well. Well, Nick's got some anger issues. He's got some emotional issues because when he took Sato down, Sato cut him on his upper right eyebrow, cut his face like it, he almost died and he's taking it personally. He wants to see Sato go down personally. So I don't know. All the more reason to get him out of the country. You just can't let it go. Yep. All right. The very ending of the movie when... Nick leaves and he leaves uh, Masahiro that present. Yeah. And Masahiro, it's a, it's a nice shirt. And then we find out that he has the actual plates for the counterfeit money. Right. And Maso yells out to Nick and Nick does that fist pump, thumb up thing. I was like, what the hell is that? I was like, why did I feel like a happy ending? Because Nick's still got to go back to the States. He still has this eternal affairs investigation over, hanging over his head. Mm-hmm. It just seemed so weird to me. I just, I laughed out loud. I'm like, what What are you doing, dude? You're about to go to prison. Yeah, it's a little cheesy. I actually kind of like it up to that point. It's a little heart. Uh, I thought it was kind of heartwarming. Yeah, it was. In then- of ways, but it's a little bit of a cheesy ending, especially with the music that's playing too. It's kind of. Yeah. I forget I the artist's name who's singing the song now, but. I uh, thought it was good up until he did the fist pump. I was like, yeah. oh my God. Good call. Good call. I had some stuff uh, before that because we have basically now for the listeners that don't know the full plot of the film, we touched upon it earlier, but I'll get into it here. And now I'm going to ask you about this here. This is a complaint. After Charlie's death, Moss and Nick now team up and kind of working a little bit outside of the law. And they find the sequence to the dress, which leads them to this mysterious woman who we know associates with both Sato and Sugai. So in this fiction, ladies and gentlemen, we understand that in the world of Osaka, there does exist the Japanese mafia, which is known as the Yakuza. And we learned that Sugai is what's called an Oyabun, whom is one of the higher ups, like one of the you know heads of a family or leader. You can put it, kind of categorize it that way or label it that way. So he's one of the higher ups. And 
Sato used to be Sugai's lieutenant. So they had a relationship and they were on the same team. Well, turns out that Sato wanted to go independent and have his own territory, etc. And he got power hungry. So that was happening. And at the same time, Sugai is running this counterfeit operation. And he has these two counterfeit printing plates. They're like these metal plates. And you need both because one is enables the printing of one side of a, a bill and the other plate does the backside of a of money of a bill. So a hundred dollar bill it just print printing bills. So you need both plates. So in order for Sato to ensure that he gets his own territory and becomes an Oyabun, he basically has gone to America where he knew one of the plates would be. And that's the opening sequence when we first meet Sato, his entrance into that restaurant, because the Japanese gentleman at that table with the the Italian mobsters, well, those Japanese gentlemen have one of the plates to show these mobsters what they're capable of in printing money. And they were going to do some sort of deal, but then Sato interrupts that and steals that plate. And he basically holds that printing plate hostage and uses it against Sugai when he returns to Japan, saying, I've got one half of the plates, and I won't return it to you until you give me my own territory and promote me to Oyabun. That's the situation. So now back to this story where I have my complaint, because Masa and Nick find the clue, which leads them to the woman, and they decide to tail her, and they tail her to a bank where she removes a safety deposit box, which then leads to a handoff, a switch, where she gives it to one of Sato's men, which then leads to a meeting at this industrial steel mill plant. And the meeting is occurring between Sato and his old boss, Sugai. And they have a conversation about the plates. And Sato's saying, I want my own territory. Now, Nick is there with Sato in the midst of the steel mill plant. And he's waiting for the meeting to be over in order to go after Sato to confront him. And so once Sato leaves the meeting with Sagai, he comes out and approaches his motorcycle alongside two of his henchmen. And Nick kind of sneaks up on him and decides to confront him there. Nick by himself, because he sent Moss off to get the cops, the other cops. But now Nick is by himself with his badge and his gun and is going to take on Sato and a couple of his henchmen in the middle of this foreign territory, completely outmanned. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Why would Sato simply surrender to Nick in that moment? It's rash and absurd on behalf of Nick to approach Sato in that situation under those circumstances. But that's who Nick is. I was like, surprise. Yeah. And of course it erupts into gunfight. Sato takes off with the two henchmen. And then luckily Moss shows up at the last minute to help Nick and they take out a couple of the guys, but Sato still gets away. And it's like, well, yeah, what did you think was going to happen? You're by yourself, dude. What are you doing in the middle of a steel mill going after Sato like that? That's a complaint. I just thought that was dumb. <laughs> yeah, it just it kind of, but we do kind of get a cool chase sequence after that. And that's the shot of Nick running over the bridge with the, the truck behind him. But like you said, it's a little anticlimactic because it just, the scene doesn't quite make a lot of lot of sense. And you're, I don't know if we're really rooting for Nick in that moment. It's just kind of he's being stupid and rash again, like we said. I agree. I did like Sugai's plan of just flooding the American economy with all these hundreds to just make him worthless as retaliation for dropping the bomb. Oh, Sugai's plan. Yeah. I did like that. Okay. 
He's actually not trying to make money to make himself rich. He just wants to ruin a country. That's pretty cool. I do like that. The motivation is there for Sagai. Yeah. For sure. I don't know. At that point, I was already like, okay, let's just keep going. All right, let's move on to Hey, It's an Actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's an Actor. Who do we choose this week? Well, you mentioned him already, William-san. And this week, our Hey, It's That actor is John Spencer. He plays the captain, uh, or known as, or credited as Oliver in this film, Black Rain. And yes, we, I believe, talked about John Spencer when we did War Games on this podcast. I could be mistaken, but I thought we had, because he plays the role of Jerry in that film. So Turn the key. Yeah, that's right. So... John Spencer goes all the way back to 1963 when he had a reoccurring role on The Patty Duke Show. Uh, Spencer is known for playing the role of Jerry, as we just said, in War Games, which we covered on this very podcast. Uh, He's also known for his role as FBI Director Womack in The Rock in 1996. But he's probably best known for his role as Leo McGarry on 155 episodes of The West Wing, which aired from 99 to 2006. I personally am a big fan of his role as Detective Dan Lipprinzer in Presumed Innocent, where he plays opposite our guy Harrison Ford. Great movie. He's great in it. I love his character in that. But I have to mention, of course, Mr. John Spencer was on an episode of Miami Vice in 1986, playing the role of Lieutenant Lee Atkins. And that episode was in season three and entitled The Good Collar. If you aren't already now familiar with John Spencer, whom we are talking about, uh, one of his trademarks is his gravelly, smoke-burnished voice. That's straight from IMDb. And sadly, John passed away in December of 2005 from a heart attack. And as it so happens, art imitates life a bit here because his character on the West Wing had also suffered a heart attack from which that character recovered. But after John's passing that character would then die from another heart attack. And that's how the character was written off the show. So that is our Hey, It's That actor, John Spencer. Yeah, I became a fan of John Spencer on L.A. Law. He wasn't on the original cast, but he eventually came in maybe two or three seasons in. That's where it started for me, L.A. Law. Great actor. It's always fun. He's one of those character actors, again, where it's a pleasant surprise when he shows up. It's like Reginald Val Johnson, right? There's like anybody like that or a John C. Riley or something. You're just like, oh, hell yeah. It's that guy. Love that guy. Yep. And I want to give a real quick shout out to this particular guy because I always do whenever I see him. Got to mention Al Leong. Yes. <laughs> He's in this. Uncredited as Sato's Yakuza assassin. Yes. Great death. Oh, yeah, man. He gets blown away by a machine gun and falls into a car as it's driving off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of his better deaths, that's for sure. All right, moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Black Rain? All right. Well, this is going to explain some of my issues with the film. Well, the high cost and red tape involved in filming in Japan prompted director Ridley Scott to declare that he would never film in that country again. In one instance, while filming in a steel mill, Scott was interrupted mid-take by an official who placed his hand over the camera. Due to strict firearms laws in the country, the production also had difficulty using prop firearms and were prohibited from firing blank ammunition. Scott was eventually forced to leave the country and complete the final climactic scene in Napa Valley, California. 
after ruling out shooting in New York or Hong Kong. So that kind of explains why the ending is the way it is. Yeah. Because I, I mentioned this early on in this pod. I was like, man, if I wish they had just stayed in Osaka, stayed in the city. I love the backdrop. It has kind of a Blade Runner feel about it. The neon lights, the kind of the the smoke, the steam, the the atmospheric nature of it. But they were forced to come back and shoot in Napa Valley for the climactic scene. Yeah, that's a different different atmosphere altogether. What do you have for some trivia fun facts? So the exterior of Sagai's house was the Enos Brown House in Los Angeles, California. Director Sir Ridley Scott had previously used the dwelling for Deckard's apartment complex in Blade Runner. So the Enos Brown House is the last and largest of the Frank Lloyd Wright's four textile block houses, which was designed to mimic Mayan revival architecture. It was built by the famed architect's son, Lloyd. All right. Now, I had mentioned that early departure from Japan, so that early departure did cause additional problems. Deals with Japanese actors had to be renegotiated, and some of the actors were unable to get visas in time to complete their roles in the U.S. Some of these Japanese bit players who had already been filmed were replaced with lookalikes, while others were cut out of the film. Various props and vehicles had to be duplicated or sent to Los Angeles. Two Japanese propane-fueled cars were shipped over, but they did not meet U.S. safety standards, and they were destroyed once filming ended. There you go. And I'm going to say this real quick, and I had mentioned this earlier that I was so happy to see Jan de Bont's name as the cinematographer on this film, but here's the real deal. The unfavorable working conditions in Japan also caused original, that is original, cinematographer Howard Atherton to quit early in production, and he was replaced by Jan DeBont. Atherton is credited with additional photography. Crazy stuff. So um, that steel mill that you mentioned as one of your complaints was the former Mitsubishi Steelworks in Osaka. It is now the location of uh, Universal Studios Japan. Aha. Yeah. How about that? That's cool. Well, I love me, I should say we love us some Hans Zimmer. Black Rain marked the first collaboration between Hans Zimmer and Ridley Scott. I'm I'm glad you said Sir Ridley. I should have said that much earlier, and I apologize. Sir Ridley Scott. Zimmer would go on to score several more films for Ridley Scott, including Thelma and Louise, Hannibal, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, and Matchstick Men. The film's score was conducted and orchestrated by Shirley Walker. So the scene where Charlie sings on stage in the nightclub with Masahiro was not in the original script. Garcia conceived the scene to add extra emotional involvement to his character before he is brutally murdered in the following scene. Good call. Wow. In Japanese cinema, Ken Takakura, good old Masahiro, was well known for regularly playing Yakuza gangsters while Yusaku Matsuda was well-known for regularly playing detectives. He was the bad guy in this. So in Black Rain, they play opposite roles. And at, at you know what? At the time of the film was made, Ken Takakura was reportedly Japan's biggest office uh, box office star. Ken Takakura was so popular at the time of filming that the sets would be mobbed by fans trying to get his autograph. This caused trouble as the film was on a very strict time frame. Yeah, I wish he had done more American films. I really liked him in this. Yeah, me too, man. 
All right, uh, this one's kind of a sad one. So the film is dedicated to Japanese actor Yakusuka Matsuda, who refused treatment for his bladder cancer to play Sato. He died just weeks after the film's North American premiere. He was only 40. Yeah, super sad. I thought he was a great presence. Oh, yeah. Super cool bad guy in this. Um, This is what I got for my last one. In retrospect, Michael Douglas said, quote, it was hard to know who to root for. And people here were uncomfortable with race stuff and talking about the bomb. There was a critic who remained nameless who called it a racist film. I called him up and asked, have you ever been to Japan? He said, no. And I said, then what the hell are you talking about? The Japanese loved it. I loved it. I thought it rocked from top to bottom. And during an interview on the podcast WTF with Mark Marin in November 2021, Ridley Scott called the film fucking great. Okay. All right, let's move on to box office. So Black Rain was released on September 22nd, 1989 in 1,610 theaters. On an estimated budget of $30 million, it grossed $45.9 million domestically and $88 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $133.9 million. It debuted number one at the box office here in the United States and held on to that top spot for another two weeks. It dropped to number five in its fourth week of release and dropped out of the top 10 by its seventh week. Black Rain was the 29th highest grossing movie in the U.S., just behind See No Evil, Hear No Evil. But worldwide, it was the 11th highest grossing movie, just behind License to Kill. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we would watch At The Movies with Cisco and Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Black Rain was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Roger called it a terrifically good-looking production to cover up a very, 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 very thin script. Gene said Black Rain is good-looking, but not much else to recommend it. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 54% and has an IMDb rating of 6.6. So that brings us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Black Rain? Well, here's a question for you, Bill Bant. At the end of the film, we have this meeting of the four Yakuza Oyabuns. It's funny, every time I was typing Oyabun, or I should say I was doing voice to text as taking notes when I was watching the film, I would say out loud Oyabun, and it kept typing out oil buns. <laughs> so we have a meeting of the four Yakuza oil buns, plus a Sato at the end. And we knew the whole plan from Sato was that he had basically taken this printing plate hostage in order to make a power grab. And he asks Sugai, where is the other half, the other plate? And Sugai says, it's in a safe place. But then it turns out Sugai has one of his guys bring over the plate there. He had it with him. And so the plates are now together at this meeting. Why would Sugai bring his half of the plate to the meeting? When he already does not trust Sato, even though Sato is now proving his loyalty at this meeting, granted, I get it. He chops his own finger off to do so. But does it make any sense for Sugai to, because now Sato can just literally stab him as he does and take both plates. Yeah, I think the whole thing when he was having that conversation with uh, Nick, Sugai and Nick, you know, Nick says, hey, I can take care of Sato for you. And... So guy says something about like you don't understand honor 
and that's something I don't really have time to explain. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the way it is. It's like, all right, Sada did what he asked, so I'm going to show that you did your part. I'm going to do mine, regardless of if I know you're going to double-cross me or not. It's just old traditional thinking that wouldn't change at that point. All right. I'll roll with it. I mean, I, I don't agree with that move, but that's the way he played but I see, it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's kind of his show, his show of faith, where he's just saying, okay, here's my half of the plate. I trust you now. We can work together. Bad call. Big mistake. Yep. Jason, how are your uh, chopstick skills? Terrible. So I think about, man, that scene between Moss and Nick and the, the old woman was helping Nick with his chopsticks. I was like, oh, yeah, that's what I need. I need somebody to really instruct me properly. And I probably had people do it. But I know I've had other friends do it for me before, but I still I'm, I'm not very good. It takes me forever. I mean, I always end up asking for a fork like an idiot, like a total guy, Gene. <laughs> How are your chopstick skills? I won't starve. Good enough that I can get most food yeah. on them and eat it. There's no way I was going to have a fork. I'd be okay. It'd be slow, but I could do it. Good for you, Bill. Here's an additional thought. You know, I'm just saying, I just would have liked to have seen what would have happened because we have these clashing cultures. We have the Japanese culture that is rooted in such deep history and such a reverence for that history and tradition and philosophy. And we have the American culture depicted as, you know, rewarding the individual for taking chances. Or we have this rogue cop proving himself through reckless action based on emotion and an idea of masculinity and machismo and all that. And I just would have liked to have seen in the third act how these cultures come together to work as one and achieving a common goal. And it's just kind of like Masik just acquiescing to the ways of Nick back him up as Nick goes charging into this meeting at the end and takes on Sato. It's like, man, it would have been cool to see if this had, re- you know, and it's again, it's just kind of a slave to the circumstances, right? It's not necessarily anybody's fault. They had to leave Japan. They couldn't shoot the, the final climactic sequence action set piece in Japan, but it would have been cool if it just remained in Osaka in the city and you would have seen Nick have to work alongside Moss and that police department in order to bring Sato down and see his growth and being, you know what, I'm going to just calm the F down and be a team player. Just really be a team player and do it the right way. Do it the right way. Let's get him the right way and feel good about that. Unfortunately, just that's not how this movie ends. There's no, no arc. It's like the arc is, I felt like it was building. It kind of, it was getting to some, to a place there and uh, it just didn't come to fruition. I agree. There's just a lot of script and story issues watching it now and not paying attention to it when I was younger and watching it now, it's just like, Ooh, God, that's so obvious. I don't understand some of these choices they were making. What are you going to do? Do you have any other additional thoughts or questions? Yeah, I have a question just because okay. I thought this was interesting and maybe you knew because you know, your dad used to be a pilot. So there's one point when they actually put Michael Douglas on a plane to send him back because he went after Sato with the gun and, Japanese authorities catch him and poor Masahiro gets demoted. So Douglas is on the plane, distraught that he's getting sent home. And then he somehow literally crawls through the belly of the plane and just goes out through the luggage compartment. Is that possible? Can you do that? I don't know. I do not, unfortunately, know the inner workings of the airplane and that particular jet that he was flying on at that time. This is 88, 89. 
uh, when it was being filmed. Shout out to Northwest Airlines, by the way. You know, in that particular setup, supposedly because that's where that was like the food compartment, I think there was a lift right. that went up into that compartment. So they were providing supplies through that compartment. He climbs in there and then the lift lowers down and he ends up in the belly of the plane and is able to then basically exit the belly from that point. But it's a, a convenient device, right, to get him off the plane. It right. looks, it seems kind of cool and you want to be in his shoes. Like I was like, man, how would I do that? That's why I love, I just love movies when you just kind of like are able to be like fantasize about being in that scenario and be like, how would I, if I saw that, you know, sneak into the compartment and how exciting would that be trying to get off the plane that way? So yeah, can it be done? I have, I wish I could answer that question for you. I'm sorry, man. Ah, Yeah. I don't know if that's possible. Seemed like it seemed feasible the way they right. presented it. I mean, I'm not. That's how they did it in the befores. That's how they raised things up into the plane that way through that particular compartment. You would be able to go down the same way. Mm -hmm. That's all I have for additional thoughts and questions. Yeah, you know, I was going to get into, you know, we always kind of go with the general obvious questions like what's your favorite Ridley Scott film and things like that. But I'm going to save that for uh, we'll get it to another Ridley Scott film here on this podcast. We have some big ones to do. So uh, I'll save those questions for later. I was just going to kind of return to my original question from earlier. The question is, do you miss these cop movies of back in the day that had a little bit more? There's a particular style of look to them that were, uh, we like to say gritty on this podcast. Yes, we do. You know, Love gritty. You know, whereas the, the action films today are so crisp and so clean and we're shooting on cameras that, you know, shooting 12K. And they look fantastic visually, stylistically. With the choreographed action sequences are just blow your mind. Your John Wicks, etc. And just, but man, I, I just, I kind of miss some of these these genre films from back in the day. I wish, even if they were parodies, I would kind of like to see an over the top movie just called '80s Cop or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I just miss it. I'm just like, man, movies are too clean. That's me just being an old man. That's okay, I guess. Back in my day, our film You're used right. to have grain. These were real movies. Real movies, real grit, real tough guys. All right, that takes us to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five counterfeit plates, what do you give Black Rain? Yeah, man, I, I'm giving this three and a half counterfeit plates because I enjoyed this movie a little bit more than you, William Son. I'm a fan of so many things about this movie. First of all, Michael Douglas, of course. Andy Garcia stealing every scene he's in, the buddy cop relationship between Nick and Charlie, I really bought for the first hour of the film. I think the first hour is uh, a lot of fun. I feel the loss of the character of Charlie uh, so severely. that So that means they, they did something right. Andy Garcia clearly did something right as an actor. I appreciate uh, the first half of the arc of the relationship between Nick and Moss. And I absolutely love the Hans Zimmer score. We've got a real menacing bad guy in Sato. Like I keep saying, I love that gritty CD film of an 80s cop action thriller with some uh, well-directed and well-shot action sequences. But yeah, this movie just literally runs out of steam, uh, runs into a wall, stops being quite as interesting in the third act, and we just feel the loss of the Osaka location. And so, yeah, for me, first three quarters, pretty good. But in the end, I, I, I kind of liked uh, the tag on the end. Uh, with them saying goodbye in the airport. So it wrapped up nicely for me. I'm going to give it three and a half. I'm being generous. 
I like Black Rain. Yeah, I'm giving it two and a half. I'm a big Michael Douglas fan, but I had no idea what the character was doing throughout this movie. And he was just, <laughs> he was just yeah. piss, it was just pissing me off. I didn't understand what his motivation was, why he made a lot of the choices that he made. I was so much more interested in Charlie and Masahiro. And, you know, we lose Charlie an hour into the movie. So you're just kind of like, ugh. And like you said, too, there's there's no arc for him. The story is, eh. Looks great, though. It does look great. Yeah. Yeah, I just think they should have just worked in the story more and, and just somehow developed the Nick character. I just would have totally took him in a different direction. It just made no sense to me. He would just go in every scene and just start yelling about stuff and just be pissed off. Kind of one note. Two one note for me. Good call on that one. So two and a half. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Did you see in the research that this story was supposed to be Beverly Hills Cop 2 originally? Did you come across that? Yeah, I did. I could, yeah. I could see it. I could see that. Because didn't they do some kind of... I thought that had something to do with money in the second one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it would have been a comedy. Eddie Murphy. All right. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to reach out, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. Have an excellent week, everyone. Williamson, sometimes you just got to go for it. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs> <laughs>